has caused the peg that they had with the euro to be removed. In other words, over the years, recently at least, they've pegged the Swiss franc at 120 against the euro. And the Swiss government has, and banks have been spending a lot of money keeping that value against the euro. And the Swiss International Bank said that they would keep that indefinitely that way. Well, this week, they uh, suddenly changed that, and the euro now will not be pegged against the Swiss franc at 120, and the euro immediately sank 30% against the Swiss franc the same day. Uh, the Swiss government is losing 80 or $90 billion in so doing, but the euro is in so much trouble that it would have pulled the Swiss franc down. They were afraid if they kept that there and kept having to pay to, to uh, shore up the euro. So I think that is a huge announcement that they made. It shows the instability in the whole world economic system, and this thing is flying toward coming apart pretty rapidly. How long that will take is, I guess, anybody's guess, but it shouldn't take too long now that the volatility is getting much greater. So uh, that's something to kind of keep an eye on. The Swiss banks also have started charging interest now on all your deposits if you have money in a Swiss bank. Not just savings account, but it's three-quarters percent for all you have in a Swiss bank, that they charge you to have your money there. We've gone quite a way from people paying you to have your money in the bank, on savings accounts at least, and now checking, savings, apparently either one, uh, they dock you three-quarter percent every year for having your money there. And to add to that, since the United States declared the sanctions against Russia, it's been hurting the European economy quite a bit. And some of them were beginning to make grumblings of getting away from the United States foreign policy. And this could lead to the breakup of NATO, uh, which is the only glue that holds the Israelite nations basically together. So those sanctions, along with us making a deal, which everyone over there recognizes, to lower the price of oil to hurt Russia, uh, the Russians have now retaliated. They have now stopped, in the middle of the winter, shipment of gas to Europe, uh, a counter move against us lowering the price of oil, along with the Saudis and others that we made the deal with. So this is going to have the Europeans in severe trouble, and where is it all leading? <laughs> because now we're making these gigantic moves. Before it was subtle, behind-the-scenes things that were done, and now it's getting right out in the open. And these, these are major factors. When you can't heat your factories and heat your homes and your offices because the Russians cut the gas off, uh, you're going to get very, very upset very, very rapidly. And the, us being behind, dropping the oil prices has affected Venezuela to a great degree. There are ripple effects. They have armed guards outside the stores in Venezuela now because people can't get food. And uh, they're starting even to do some rioting. When you get hungry, you begin to do things to try to find a way to get food. So we are becoming hated more and more around the world. And I read an article this morning it says that we are beginning to amass uh, troops and materiel for war in Jordan and in Kuwait with the, it appears, fairly obvious intent of invading uh, Syria at this point. We tried to uh, some time back, when was it, a year or two, it goes by so fast, and it was kind of shut up and hushed and, and it didn't work. But apparently now we're ready to have a regime change in Syria and are preparing to go to war there. And Dave Hodges had an article on it this morning, 
and he tied it to Iran very directly, that we would go in and take over Syria and what oil they have as a stepping stone to be next door to Iran to indeed attack it, even as our government is making noises about concessions to Iran. But they understand that Iran is the key to the petrodollar, and now that they're selling oil to China and Russia and India, bypassing the dollar, uh, the powers that be in the banking world don't want that to happen. They're, they're at least allegedly, allegedly trying to protect the petrodollar, even as they are undermining it and want to destroy the U.S. dollar. But at the same time, they want to get all the wealth they can before it collapses. So while they make these moves, apparently, to save the dollar, uh, they want it destroyed because America is the only thing between the powers that be in this world and Satan, and should I say not just America, but in that sense Israel, to tie it with prophecy. I mean the Israel of God, not the Israel of politics in the Middle East. So it's being set up that it's going to be the, the Gentile world against the nations of Israel, the leader of whom is the United States, so they have to destroy us in order to take over in the times of the Gentiles to occur. So I just wanted to take a few minutes to update some of the wild things that are beginning to occur. Somebody described it like spinning a top and it spins along pretty good, and then you just see a little wobble. And then as it slows down, it begins to really wobble, and then falls. So this thing has been kind of spinning with a little wobble here and there, and now the wobbles are getting really big. So uh, how long does it go before things truly fly apart? But what's the thing with Syria and Iran, because... If I'm correct about Daniel 8, as I've said many times, it would appear that we will attack the Persians, according to the definition there in the Bible, if that's who it's talking about is Iran, that we would attack them, and then we would be attacked soon thereafter. So we're, we're headed very quickly here to World War III. Uh, it's something we need to be very, very aware of, because the leaves are not only coming on the trees, they're beginning to leaf out pretty good, it appears. So just a little update that we need to be praying diligently that God, that we get where we need to be with God so we are afforded his protection. We can't do anything about the world, but we can do something about our relationship with God. And that's what we need to concentrate on even as we watch these things draw near and use it as a motivation, as an impetus to draw close to God. Because as you see things coming, the world is getting more and more fearful. The cops are afraid of the robbers, and the robbers are afraid of the cops, if you will. And it's getting more and more that way. There was another mall shooting today, in fact, in Melbourne, Florida, at least a couple of people dead, maybe one more. It just was spotty reports when I noticed it. So things are moving along very rapidly, and... Fear of what's coming won't help us, but fear of God is our only salvation. So let's, let's be very aware, brethren, as this time draws near. Okay, uh, for the sermon then today, Nelson Nichols. Well, good afternoon. I guess what I could do uh, after the announcements, I could just pretty well say, Daryl summed it up. <laughs> because it's important what, what's going on. I, uh, I wrote down things that were happening in the world, and I, I heard this morning that up in Canada... That and something to think about is going to happen in this country too. But in Canada, they shut down all of the Target stores, which means they're going to put seventeen thousand people out of work, which is going to snowball. It's going to wind up uh, 
affecting a lot more than 17,000 people. When you start taking away the income, it begins to affect everybody, every place. As Daryl was talking about the news, I, I jotted down. In 1964, um, we got a book, 1975 in Prophecy, and I read through that, and I could remember, you know, they show the pictures of, of big tidal waves and people killing each other in war and all these things occurring. And we've been talking about that for years. This is nothing new, only it winds up that the closer we come to that period of time, the more rapid things advance. And so I was, I've been working on this sermon probably a month, which is not unreal for me because I I read a lot of other things too. And it made me aware of, and as we're listening to the announcements and what's happening in the Middle East and what's happening in this country and what's happening up in Canada uh, with the riots in this country, uh, people try to find anything to cause uh, looking down on somebody else. And so I've been going through a book that that was written originally back, I guess, in the 50s. Uh, this one was a, a revision of one. Um, it's 1972, and it's called Just What Do You Mean Conversion? And as I heard the announcements, and I've been thinking about this for a month, I've asked myself, Am I converted? And I, and I think every one of us ought to ask that very question. I broke down here, what is real conversion in the sight of God? And I think every one of us need to take a moment, probably a day or two or a lot of meditation time, and ask God, what do you mean, God, conversion? What's, what does conversion mean to you? as opposed to me. Because I had somebody ask me some time back, or they didn't ask me, I'm sorry, they told me that they weren't going to be converted and they're in the church. Now here they are in the church of God, not in this congregation, but we know that Worldwide Church of God, God broke up because we were all just wishy-washy we were doing our own thing. We all slipped off the track. Mr. Armstrong, I can remember years saying, we got to get back on track. He had a vision that the church was going off some direction that wasn't supposed to go into. And so I get to thinking, would somebody who is a member of, the, of God's church come up and say, you ain't going to convert me. Well, my thoughts are, you're right. I'm not going to convert you. I'm not even going to try to convert you. That's not my job. It's not my job to convince you or to change the way you go. It's not Daryl's job. It's not Gordon's job to force you to go the right direction. We can present the material. It's up to you. So I put another question down. As being a member of the church of God, just because we are in some congregation, some place, and it's got a title, Church of God, does that make us converted? Is that enough to say, hey, I go to church on a Sabbath, I sit in a seat, I hear a sermon, I do pray, Mostly every day. At least try to do it. At least once a week, maybe. Does that make you a Christian? Does that make you converted to God? Because you have the opportunity to say, I am a member of the church of God. And it doesn't have to be this little group. It can be any place. Any one of the names. It doesn't make any difference. Let's look at false conversion first, because it's important to understand what conversion is and what false conversion is. 
And I'm going to read from this book, Mr. Armstrong. It says, let's ask the question, what is true conversion? What is real Christian? A, what is a real Christian in God's sight? That's a question I ask. False conversion. So understand this. A person is a Christian. And I'm quoting from Mr. Armstrong. A person is a Christian in God's sight only while God's Spirit is dwelling in him, not before or after. In other words, as long as you are letting God lead and direct you and having His Spirit in you, God considers you converted. But if you walk away, if you do something different, does God consider you a Christian? A member of His coming family? Galatians 6. Turn, if you would, to Galatians 6, verse 6. Paul writing to the, to the Galatian church. Paul writing to you and to me. Writing to those that say, Hey, I'm, I'm converted to do God's way. Galatians 6, 6. Let him that thinks, uh, let him that is taught in words and communication, un- communicate unto him that teaches in all good things. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that shall he reap. We need to sit down in our own personal life. Not somebody else's. Our own personal life. What am I doing in my life? I say I'm a member of the Church of God. My name's on a roll book. But what am I doing? Where do I walk? For Verse 8, For he that sows to his flesh shall reap shall flesh reap corruption. In other words, if this physical way of life is so important to you, the money you make, the job you have, the cars you drive, the community you live in, the country you live in, if that's the most important thing to you, then you're going to reap corruption. But he that sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap everlasting life. So God's expecting us to work toward His way of life. When we think we're converted, but we're doing our own things, we're doing our own way, are we? We have to ask ourselves that question. This is, this is a, a deal that you don't look at your husband, your wife, your children, your friends, your neighbors, and say, well, I know that person's not converted because I see what they're doing, and I'm going to help them. Well, I have a guy who calls me all the time. He says he's trying to, to convert everybody in the church of God. <laughs> Can't do it. It's, not, it's impossible. It's like having an argument with somebody. If you are so convicted in your way, and in your opinion, and you argue, and you can argue for hours or days, but at the end, it won't make any difference with it. You still feel the same way. They couldn't convert you, and you can't convert them, and so you do your own thing. Verse 9, Let us not be weary in well-doing. So, a true converted Christian will never be weary in doing the good things. And a false Christian, false conversion, is doing something else. If you become faint, if you, you say, hey, I'm tired, uh, this is too much. And one of the other questions that was asked in this book was, have you ever come to someone... Or had someone tell you, if that way that you're living or this other person's living, if that's God's way of life, I want no part of it. Could somebody say that about us? Can they look at our life and say, if you're a Christian, 
and the things you're doing are supposed to be Christian, are you really a Christian? Are you really in the church of God? I know this book was written to the general population, but I'm changing it to where it points to you and to me, to the church of God today. Do we live what we believe? Do we walk that way? Or do we do something else? It gives us some thought, doesn't it? Are we well do? Do we get weary? Do we come up to the point and saying, well... And I've seen this happen in the Church of God since I've been around for over 50 years, and there's others been a lot longer than that, and some less. But in my tenure in the church, I've seen people get tired of well-doing, and I think, where are they today? So, the important part is false conversion gets weary of doing what's right. So are we weary of well-doing? For in due time, God says, an encouragement God gives us to hear, He said, in due time, or in due season, we shall reap if we don't faint. So we've got to look at the, we got to keep the big picture. We've got to keep the overall viewpoint. So we, we've got to see what God is doing, and we have to keep that in our mind and in our heart. As we have, therefore, the opportunity. So here's another encouragement to help us to keep going in the right direction. As we have the opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them that are the household of faith. So sometimes we find fault with each other. I wanted to bring a mirror up here and show you that the only person that you can convert is that mirror. When you look in that mirror and you look eyeball to eyeball in that mirror, that's the only one you're going to work on. You can't work on somebody else. Your children, you can teach them the right way. You can strive to show them the right way, but I find that the way you live your life is the greatest example of how God if you're living a godly way of life, how people want to live. If you are two-faced, and they call it hypocrite, or a hypocrite is a play actor. That's what a hypocrite is. So are we playing, or are we really in tune with doing it God's way? Hebrews 12. Hebrews chapter 12. I've added a couple of these scriptures because I know they're not in the, in the booklet, because the booklet was written to a general population of people who were called Christians who were really not Christians. They do not know God. But here in the church of God, we are being taught God. We are being shown the way God lives. So here in Hebrews 12, verse 1, Wherefore, seeing we also are accomplished about with such great cloud of witnesses, and that's referring back to Hebrews 11, showed all these individuals that lived back at that time what they went through, how dedicated these people are. Generally in this country, I don't think we've got the dedication that other countries have. The, the Muslims in this ISIL group, they, they're dedicated to the point that it would give their life. We had a cloud of witnesses that God gives to us that were dedicated to doing it God's way. So he said, we're encompassed about by such great, uh, a great cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. Paul knew it at that time as he wrote this. That sin was out there. We are faced with those things too every day. But we should go back and look at what God gave to us as a witness of how dedicated they were. We are beset by these sins. Are we fighting them? 
are we letting them take hold of us? And let us run, Paul said, with patience the race that's set in front of us. Do we understand we have a limited time? This life is only a temporary thing. And we only have a temporary time period. And as we get older, and we can look out, and we can see that end coming, are we running? Or are we going to walk away? Looking unto Jesus, the author, or here, Emmanuel. When I say Emmanuel, I think of, is God with me? Do I have God's Spirit with me? Or do I say Jesus because I know Jesus the Christ is going to come and bring this? Is He with me? Can I say in a closing prayer, yes, I believe that I walk with Christ. And that's something that I have to focus on every day. And sometimes, you know, it's easy to uh, live your life and and overlook some of those things. But here he says, looking to Emmanuel, God with us, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And Christ told us in Matthew that we need to pick, pick up and bear our cross, just like Christ. We have to walk that same path, despising the shame and set down on the right hand of of the throne of God. Christ has offered us the opportunity to be right there with Him as part of the bride of Christ. So false conversion, you faint. You're not totally convicted. You're not... You know, the American public, on the average or the generality of, of the American people, are not convicted to many other things except the dollar bill. Making money, that's what we're convicted to. And we'll do just about anything for it. But that's not what true conversion is. That's a false conversion, thinking you can buy your way into the kingdom of God. So, what then is real conversion? Let me go ahead and read on some of that. Real conversion, reading from Mr. Armstrong. There is a sense in which true conversion does take place at a definite time. And you can think about it in your your life. There was a moment in time... When all of a sudden, because I know it happened to me, all of a sudden you understood that there was a God, a real God, who had a real purpose and a real way of life, and there are definite proofs to show him that he does exist. So that happened. I know that happened to me. I was doing my own thing when God opened my eyes to that. And you need to think back when was it that it happened to you so he said a definite time all at once but it is also true that another sense conversion is worked out gradually a process of development of growth Amos 3 verse 3 tells us can two walk together if they don't agree it's hard to say, I'm Christ, you and me. And I can remember moving bees one time and having a fellow help me. And he said, God wants us to come as we are. I don't think so. He'd go to church, Sunday church, in a stinky bee suit. You know, been out there moving honey and you got this bee smell on. Uh, it drive people away from you. But he said, that's all it is. It's not true. God tells us, you can't walk with Him unless you're walking with Him. You know, the 
footprints in the sand? Do you see yours or Christ? Are you leading Christ? Or is Christ leading you? Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3, verse 14. Here Paul said, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Emmanuel Christ. So Paul was, look, I'm, the prize is God with me. The prize is the bride of Christ. And he pressed forward. Not just stumbled along. He worked at it. Let us therefore as many as be perfect be this minded. And if anything else be otherwise minded, God will reveal it. Even this unto him. So as we have difficulty, you know, we came and formed this little group. We began to grow in, in knowledge of things that you know, I remember when I heard the first Minor Prophet series. I thought, you know, when I was first called, it was like a big door opened up. And when I heard the Minor Prophet series, I said, it's like another calling. Things were opened up, and God says, if I got something else in there, God's going to reveal to us the things He wants us to do. Nevertheless, verse 16, whereunto we have already obtained, let us walk by the same rules. Let us mind the same things. Brethren, Paul said, be followers together of me and mark them which walk also as you have us, for example. So we take the example that God has given to us in the Bible. And as... Paul said, and those that are teachers as they walk. So again, I'm saying, the example that we set is more important than any words we can spew out. It will, it will cause more people to love God if we're doing it God's way, if we walk that way, if we talk that way, if we live that way. So here he said, Mark those Look out there. Who is doing it the way the Scriptures say? The way God says. And then you pattern your life after them. For many walk of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross. So there are some that are not going the right direction. You have to look into your life and compare it with Christ and then you look at the example that's being set. If the example is godly, follow it. If the example is not godly, stay away from it. Whose end is destruction? If they're not doing it God's way, he said their end is destruction. It's not eternal life. It's on our opportunity is today. We're being educated into God's way today. The world and those that are have already passed and have not known God will have their opportunity. But we have it today. It's it can bring destruction or it can bring eternal life. Whose God is their belly and whose glory is their shame whose mind, who, who mind earthly things. So there's a case. Do we, where is our mindset? What are we specifically minded on? For our conversation is in heaven. Is that what it is? When we get together, are we, are we talking about godly things? Our conversation is in heaven. From whence also we look for the Savior, the, the Lord, Emmanuel, the Christ, God with us. Who shall change our vile body? Christ will change it. 
that it may be fashioned like unto the glorious body according to the working whereby he is able to subdue all things unto himself. So again from Mr. Armstrong, when does one really become a Christian? He asked that question. When is it that we become a Christian? Is there a time? It is when he receives God's Holy Spirit. When we receive the Spirit of God, then we become a Christian, a true, honest Christian. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. Romans 8, verse 9. But you are not in the flesh. But in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of God, he's none of his. As long as we have God's Spirit dwelling in us, we are part of His way of life. Like I said earlier, in 1962, in Holloman Air Force Base, New Mexico, I was doing my own thing. I didn't think about being a part of God's way of life, I was thinking of of obtaining a job and going to be in the Air Force for 20 years and I can retire on a good income and I'm going to have... I've I've got one daughter, you know, and uh, maybe get some more... You know, this is 62. My baby daughter wasn't even a year old yet. And I thought, well, i got ahead of me a big life. I'm going to make a lot of money. I'm going to be powerful. But that's not what God had in mind. As I was washing my little Morris Minor one Sunday morning, and having nothing else to do except wash the car and listen to the radio, and I heard all these radio programs, and all of a sudden there was a voice that said, Don't believe me. Believe the Bible. If it's not in this book, it's not right. And I said, I heard this other guy. He had the hour of prayer. Uh, For 15 minutes, he gave a scripture and told me how much he needed my money. Then I heard somebody else who said, don't forget who I am. Send me your money. The next week, I was washing my car again on a Sunday. And what did I hear? Don't believe me. Blow the dust off your Bible. And my mind began to seek God. I think it was that moment of time that my mind was opened up. Was I converted completely? No. But I was on the track. I was on the right track, I believe, at that point in time. So we can see in Romans 8, it says, You are in God's way if His mind, His Spirit dwells in you. I can talk about Paul. You can think about that. I won't read the scriptures. It's in. You can go to Acts 26 later and read in Acts 26 Paul's conversion, where he was telling the king of the nation at that time. He said, "I was on my way. I was a Pharisee. I had all these great intentions of doing all these things, and I was on my way to Damascus. I was going to destroy the church." Because these people were not Jews. But what happened to Paul on the way to Damascus? God put him down, and in one moment of time, he was able to see Christ. Just like I saw him in that moment in 62. And Paul changed his way of life. Paul began to become converted. Was he totally converted at that time? No, because we can read through the Scriptures where he spent three and a half years with Christ 
before he was totally so involved in God's way of life. But he was called. He was given that understanding. There is, reading from Mr. Armstrong, there is a definite time when God's Spirit enters into one, just like it did Paul, like I feel it entered into me, and you have to look into your life and see, did it happen to me? At that very moment you receive the Holy Spirit, He is, in this first sense, converted. Because you change, all of a sudden you see that the direction I'm going, there's something not right. And I can see what God is doing, and that is more important. Yet all at once, yes, all at once, if He has Christ's Spirit, He is Christ. He is Christian. The very life of God has entered into and impregnated Him. He has been, he has been begotten as a child of God. 1 Corinthians 1.26 1 Corinthians 1.26 God has called you at one point in time. We need to understand it. God opened your understanding in 1 Corinthians 1.26 For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. I look at the church, I've been in the church all these years, I haven't seen, I've seen people, I think, they are powerful speakers. They have been, I mean, these are top-notch people. But in reality is, because I've also been in an MLM and seen some pretty powerful, rich people, people that can really convict and convince people to doing things their way, not the right way. But as I look at the church, I don't see many great noble people. Just don't see them. But God has chosen what? The foolish things of this world to confound the wise. So in God's sight, or maybe not God's sight, but in man's sight, those who are part of the church of God are foolish people. They're not very wise. Because they don't understand things that God wants you to understand. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty. So, this church has always been a weak church. We thought we were great because we were doing $250 million a year uh, operation. But what happened? What happened to the $250 million? We're not very mighty, are we? And the base things of the of the world and the things which are despised and I think a lot of the church people I've found myself in that position at times you're despised because you're keeping what? the feast of tabernacles Uh, you keep Pentecost you keep atonement where you don't eat that's kind of stupid isn't it? but not for what God wants so I've been looked down and been despised because I would not work. Uh, we were producing a lot of honey, and I didn't go out there and uh, say, "Well, I'm not going to go to the feast. I'm going to stay here and pull in all this money." And they they, they despised me because I wouldn't. I would not stay around for those next ten days and make eighty thousand dollars in honey. I said, it'll be there when I come back. Because I have to keep God's way of life. God has opened my mind to that. It's more important. So I was looked down on because I wouldn't do that. And even to the point that I was fired for the same thing. Because I was foolish. And God has chosen, yes, uh, yea, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things which are. The end result, God's saying. The end result. That's what's important. That no flesh will glory in front of God. So no matter how great we are, the end result is the glory of God. 
And so he's opened your understanding. Yes, you opened, God called you and opened your mind at an instant, at a point in time. Verse from Mr. Armstrong. But does it mean his salvation is complete? God says. Just because your mind was opened up, just because I called you, are you complete? Is that all you need? Do you, is there something more for you to do? Is it all that there is? Is he now suddenly perfect because God has opened your mind and brought you into church? Hey, I thought that when I moved to Houston and Malcolm Martin came by and knocked on the door and I saw this giant there. <laughs> to me, it was a he was six, six or seven, something like that, and filled the door. I said, there's a perfect person. <laughs> Found out later he really wasn't as perfect. He's still human. He still died. I can remember going up to the pastor's house in Big Sandy. We were in Houston. He was pastoring from Big Sandy. He was a professor in college. And I thought... I told my wife, I'm going to get to go up there and see how it is we should live our life. And I found out he wasn't perfect either. <laughs> he was a man too. So just because God's opened your mind and you already are begun on the road of conversion, are you perfect? No. You still have a lot to learn, isn't there? There's a lot to grow on. Is it now impossible for him to do anything wrong? Mr. Armstrong asked. So, God called you in the church? I'm thinking, hey, I'm in the church. Uh, there's no way I'm going to be wrong. So ordained a deacon. Man, I'm top notch now. But I make a lot of mistakes. And, and it's easy to find my mistakes because I just have to talk to other people. <laughs> And my mistakes come out. No, far from it, Mr. Armstrong said. But why? What's the answer? Why do so many people misunderstand true conversion? Why is it so difficult to understand all these things? I'm not perfect. I mean, I'm in God's church. What happened in 94 and 95? We are in a perfect church. Uh, we're growing back in the late 60s and very early parts of 70s. Very, very early 70s. We were growing at 30% a year. More than any other church. Any place. We're perfect. But then, it collapsed, didn't it? Mr. Armstrong died. And it collapsed. It wasn't because Mr. Armstrong died. It was because what it said, I said earlier, we became laxed. We became discouraged. We, uh, I can remember back in 62 and 63 and then 64, we were baptized and we said, Pastor said, you only have two third tide years and Christ will be here. We looked to 1972. We were geared for 1972. Charles Dorothy said, I don't think so, maybe 82. Well, 72 arrived. Nothing was happening in the world. You know, we've been here since 2000, this little group. We've heard time and time and time again these things are going to happen. And we're excited at first. 2001, 2002, we're still excited because these are going to happen. We're waiting for that to begin and we see some things begin to change. 2006 comes, 2007 and... We're still here. 
people are starting to leave. Are we at that point in our life where we're becoming discouraged? We're, we're saying it's not going to happen. But it is going to happen. So we heard in the announcements what's happening today in the world. What's happening out there today? What's happening in different cities? We're having riots. Like was brought out in the announcement. We, we riot over... Um, I know he didn't say that, but it is. We're rioting over police brutality and we're rioting over not having enough police brutality or not having enough police protection. We want individuality, but we want the government to take care of us. And we can see the dollar bill collapsing. Oh, they're holding it up. They keep holding it up. But it's happening, isn't it? So are we becoming discouraged with what's happening in the world today? Hebrews 4, verse 11 says, and I'll read it to you, Let us labor, God says. Paul was inspired by Christ to write, Let us labor, therefore, to enter that rest that God has offered to us. It's not a, uh, you know, well, I might make it or I will try, I'll do a little here, there, or whatever. No, Paul said you have to labor. You really got to put forth the effort and energy into it to enter that rest. Lest any man fall short of the fall after the example of unbelief. If we're not working toward it, we can get discouraged. It will happen. I've seen it happen. I know of people who were supposed to be really strong in the church. And I watched them walk away. They became discouraged. And they became and fall in the short of unbelieving what the Scriptures say. Now, we've had a tremendous blessing in this little group. We, by far, don't have all the answers. There's still a lot out there for us to learn. We still have a tremendous opportunity to change. God is feeding us if we're willing to sit and have our minds open to what He wants to teach us. But sometimes we get discouraged and we we lose our faith, we lose our focus. Uh, Go back and listen to that whole series. The Focus of God series. Focusing on God. Because somewhere down the line, if we don't continue to go and put God first, we're going to be, we're going to have unbelief. We'll get to the point to think, well, maybe I have made a mistake coming out here. Truly, I can tell you, I didn't make a mistake coming out here. The scriptures were plain. I can remember back in 2001. Uh, going over to the, I think it was a switchback restaurant, and talking with Daryl and um, Roy Hyatt, and I forget who else was there. And I've heard things there, and I heard it in 2001, and all of a sudden I understood that I had to come to where God wanted me to. And I think of Israel, what they did. God predicted that they would go into 400 years of captivity. At the end, He took them through four plagues so that He could get their attention. He gave them a break and relief from the rest. He took them to a place where He was between a rock and a hard place. Two rocks and a sea in front of them, and a vicious army ready to destroy them behind them. And God opened the path and took them to safety. They watched their enemy die. And just like us today, we haven't changed. It's just like today, we become discouraged, and we have a lack of 
belief. We lose the thought, the belief, and everything that we had in the beginning. So we have to ask ourselves, not somebody else. It's not up to Daryl, not up to Gordon, not up to me, not up to Terry as speakers here. It's up to you and God. That's the main focus that you've got to have. Do I see and have the vision that God has? He's looking for a family. And it's just a start, you know. It's a start. Real repentance. Real repentance. Philippians 2, verse 5. Mr. Armstrong writes, I I repeat, a Christian, a truly converted person is one who has received and in whose mind dwells the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. But how does that one receive God's Holy Spirit? How do you receive it? Do you have God's Spirit in you? Philippians 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Emmanuel Christ, or Christ Jesus Emmanuel, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Do we take this approach? Do you have enough of God's Spirit in your heart, in your mind, and in your life to say, I'm going to be God? I've got an opportunity to be the bride of Christ. Is that where our mind is? Do we consider it okay? Do we consider it equal with God? Not in power. You know, we'll never be the father. We'll never be the husband. But we will be the bride. The beginning of God's family. We will be God. We will have godly powers. We'll have godly love. We'll have godly strength and godly patience and godly forgiveness. And a lot of that we need to work on. In Acts 2.38, they came to Paul, I mean to Peter, and said, What are we going to do? How can we obtain this Spirit of God? And in Acts 2.38, we used that as a memory scripture for years, and maybe some of us remember it, some of us probably don't. But it says, because they asked Peter these things, Peter answered the people asking the question, he said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Emmanuel Christ, for the remission of sin, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. By repentance, and turning around your life of going in and having immersion where you are killing and it's a symbol just like Israel when they went through the Red Sea the whole nation was in the, the bed of the Red Sea at one time and they came out a new nation no longer a servile group of people serving the Egyptians They came out a new group of people. When we repent, and I'm sure that at one point in time, the minister asked you, do you accept Christ? Do you understand who you are as a human being? I can remember those questions asked of me. Sitting there in Pasadena, California. I mean, Pasadena, Texas. (laughs) I've never been to Pasadena, California, I don't think. But in Texas, and Richard Prince asking that question. Have you looked into your life? Do you understand that you are a human being? That you have been living contrary to God's way of life? So I had to ask myself, 
to repent. Did I change? Am I willing to make the change that's required in order to be able to receive God's Spirit? And they push you under the water, and if they didn't hold, let you up real quick, you know, you'd suck in some water and you would die. So it's symbolic of killing your old way of life and coming out of that body of water as a new person. And then following Scripture, having hands laid on you and ask God to impart into you His Spirit. We've all been that point. The majority of us, all those sitting here have been. We've asked, said, hey, I change. Now we have to go back and say, is that a true conversion? Or am I just play-acting? I'm quite sure at first we all believed it. We all made that change. But when things don't happen quick enough, what happens? Do we lose sight of the goal that we're looking toward? Because that's what's important. You, you have to see the goal and you have to, as Paul said, you run that race to win that race. You've got to put something out there and effort and energy into that. So Paul, or Peter said to the people, and it's been said to each one of us, do you repent? Do you look at your life? Are you willing to make the change? Are you willing to be converted? You have to say, I am willing to be converted. Not to go up and say, hey, look, uh, I don't want to be converted. I do. I want, to be, I want to continue to change. I want to continue to make straight paths for my feet. Do you? Are you willing to do that? Are you ready to do that? <coughs> repent of what? What do we repent of? We repent of sin. We repent of going contrary to God. There's two conditions to receive God's uh, gift of His Holy Spirit. And that is repentance and trust. Faith. You have to have both of them. If you want to be converted, you have to be willing to change and accept God's Spirit. And I got a lot more to read. Time's running out, so maybe I can hold this off to another day, another sermon, because there's a lot more to to being part of God's way of life. There's a lot more to being conversion than just saying I'm converted. There's a lot more than just I was baptized, I've had hands laid on me, now I have God's Spirit. It doesn't end with that. That's the beginning. And as I read earlier, sometimes we've taken that beginning, we're so excited. We try to convert everybody we come to. Can't do it. But we're so excited, and we see these things in our minds, but someplace down the line, I think we forget the direction we're going. So, maybe in the next time I get to speak, we'll go into the part of what it takes. Because there's a lot more to it than just being baptized and accepting God. Because Christianity does that today. They say, do you accept God? Okay. You accept God. You can come as you are. No. We cannot come as we are. We said, I... I see my mistakes. I see who I am. I see what I've got to change. And now I've had hands laid on me. I've got it made. Do we? So, take the time. 
spend time. Most of the time, I, you know, I know with sermons that Daryl gives, that Gordon gives, Terry gives, I give. If if I will take those notes and then expand them, you know, that's what sermons are for: is to make you want to find out more. And am I looking like Christ? And as Amos says, Amos three. Can I be a Christian? Can I walk with Christ and hold His hand and go and do my own thing? So, maybe next time we'll go into a little bit more on things that's required to becoming a Christian.